as they leave, I just want to mention um, a couple things. Uh, one, especially if some of these might be your sons. Um, so we're going to begin a series for men in our church called The Intentional Father. So there's actually a book that goes along with it. That information's in your bulletin. But if you're a dad, especially a dad to sons, I would encourage you to take part. If you're a father to daughter as well, you're also welcome. Um, just the book was written to, to dads of, of sons. But I'd encourage you to be a part of that. It's coming up. I hope to see you there. If you have questions, let me know. I also want to mention, beginning tomorrow, Monday through Friday this week, I know tomorrow's Labor Day, and so you're like, well, that's a holiday. I know. Um, but we're still going to gather to pray each night this week from 6.30 to 7.30. If you're like, ooh, an hour of prayer, that's a really long time. We also sing a few songs together, and there's like a brief devotional. And so it's really not a full hour of praying in silence. And then we give you a booklet of things to pray over. And there are prayer requests. You can fill out cards in the foyer as you leave today if there's something we can pray for. And we'll place those along the altar, and people will pray for those as well. So we'd love for you to be a part of that. If you're, this is your church home, um, then set aside as many of these nights as you can. If you can make all five, great. If you can make three, then make three. But come as much as you're able and be a part of prayer Monday through Friday this week from 6.30 to 7.30. Um, as I begin today, I just want to say a, a special thank you and encourage you to thank them as well. I'm so thankful for Matt and Holly and Sarah and Kendra and Mel, and I'm sure I'm forgetting others, but this summer as I was going on sabbatical, if you're new today, hey, nice to meet you too. Um, if you started coming a month ago, We've not probably not met, um, but but I just want to say thank you to them. And so as you see them, please thank them for the extra effort they put in this summer and just appreciate them. And so please just feel free to, to congratulate them for the, just their hard work and effort. And um, I have nothing but good things to say. In fact, what I said in the nine o'clock service was this, that um, as I talked to people, like, oh, um, it's been so good. Like, um, you're back. Like, we kind of were hoping they would stay longer. No, um, so we're just glad that, that we have great staff here at part of our church. But, but I was thinking how this summer is a unique season in my life, and so maybe it's a unique season in your life. And I was thinking about seasons of life in which we learn lessons. Some lessons we learn by virtue of we did something we shouldn't have done, and we learned the repercussions of it and go, ooh, that was a bad idea. Other times, we just happen to learn something by virtue of what we're doing day in and day out. And so I was thinking about how the reality of this for all of us is that Various seasons of life bring different things. And so I didn't really know how to describe this summer as I was absent from you in so many ways. And so I, I thought really there were three lessons I learned. And so I thought I would share them today because here's the crazy thing about those three things. Um, I knew them before I left. And they're all, they're peppered all throughout scripture. And so I just thought I would share them with you again this morning. So here they are. Number one, faith is communal. It can't be done alone. It's meant to be done in community with people. Uh, number two, Sabbath matters. We'll talk some more about each of these. And then number three, a firm foundation is vital. And so where am I going with these things, right? What do I mean by this? Well, my first Sunday of sabbatical was an interesting day for me. In fact, um, it was a really good day. Like, I, I live in normal rhythms. I like routine and kind of the same thing over and over again. And, and like, I eat the same thing for breakfast basically every single day, um, because I just like to know what each day is going to bring as much as I have control over. And so um, maybe you're like that, or maybe you're, you're like, you just came off summer break, and you're like, ah, ooh, I don't know what day it was. I'd ask my parents, like, I didn't know if it was Tuesday or Thursday or Wednesday. I don't know. It was a day after yesterday and a day before tomorrow. I don't know what today is. Maybe that's been you, and your, your balance, your rhythm has been thrown off. And so for me, the first Sunday started like I thought it was going to be a great kind of time. And so I... I got up early, 
I read my Bible, I spent some time in prayer, I went for a walk and listened to a sermon, my alarm didn't go off, um, but, but I began to find that like, it was just an interesting kind of day. And I got home, and I, uh, Jack McCormick preached here that morning, and I worked for Jack for a number of years, and so I sat on the back patio, and I listened to his sermon, drank a cup of coffee, and I was like, oh, you know. But I'm leaving out like, the part that was the weirdest part of my day. So my wife was serving in children's ministry that morning, and both services, and so my son was doing check-in, and so uh, my daughter said, I don't want to go to the 9 o'clock service, I just want to go at 10.30. It's fine. And Katie's like, well, you give her a ride. Absolutely, yeah, no big deal. And then I didn't think about anything until all of a sudden I'm almost here, and I go to pull in the parking lot, and I had Matt and Holly ringing my ear going, don't you dare show up. And so I pulled in, and I see some people outside, and I didn't know whether I was supposed to wave or duck or act like I didn't see them or what. So I, I didn't know what to do. I just dropped Gracie off, and I left. So um, it was weird. In fact, that's the word I would use to describe my kind of summer when it comes to local churches. It was disorienting. I felt disconnected. Right? I went to six different churches in three different states. I led a communion service in Jerusalem. Like, I went to church. I was a part of a community of faith lots of places. In fact, one of the cool things on our trip is there were people from Belize and Australia and um, Oklahoma, which is kind of like another country. And, um, and then behind us in Bethlehem was a group from Nigeria. And so you could see the church was this kind of beautiful conglomeration of people from all over the world. And it was a beautiful thing to see. But I was disconnected. I was disoriented because the normal rhythm of my routine, the normal people in which I gather with, I was disconnected from. And it messed with me in some ways. Some of it good, some of it not so good. As I was thinking about here's the reality for us, this is what we find all throughout the scriptures over and over again. We're called to be part of a community of faith. Whether this summer, as you look through the book of James, whether it was James writing that or Peter or Paul or even the words of Jesus, we find that faith and community matters. And so what I was thinking about was this. Um, in the middle of all those things, in the middle of the beauty of the church that is global, we're not called to live separate from one another or disconnected from a community of faith, but we're called to live connected to a unique people. And so I started thinking about these words of Jesus how he says he's the bread of life, he's the source of life, and we find in his community it is life-giving for us. And so these words from John might be helpful for us today. And so here's what Jesus says. And Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall not lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. And I will raise him up at the last day. Jumping to verse 53. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood. You have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. 
This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. By the way, if you're like, that's some weird stuff that Jesus just said, you're normal to think that. If you don't think that, I'm kind of concerned about you. It's a weird passage. In fact, at the end of this passage, when he was teaching this, many people quit following Jesus because what he was actually saying in this moment was so difficult, they wanted nothing to do with it. And so what is he trying to say here? What's going on here? What, what's the thing in which they feel disconnected? In fact, I, I think maybe the words of Ronald Rollheiser, a guy who wrote the book called The Holy Longing, I think some of his words might be helpful to get us in the context of what's being said here by Jesus. Here's what he says. Community is a constitutive part of the very essence of Christianity and thus of spirituality. God calls us to walk in discipleship, not alone, but in a group. He points out the obvious. We read a weird line about eat my flesh and drink my blood. It's a weird, weird line. But what is Jesus actually trying to say? This is also why we say in It's so important to understand Scripture. It's why we don't say, hey, just read the Bible and do what it says, because this makes no sense if you just read the Bible and do what it says. That's why the context in which Scripture is written matters so much. And so we begin to find is one of the things we notice is in the New Testament, there are two different words that are used to define the body. These two words are sarx and soma. And so this particular text here, Jesus uses the word sarx to describe body. And you're like, well, why does that matter? And why are you talking about Greek? Because I don't speak Greek. Fair, neither do I. But the New Testament is written in Greek, and here's why it matters. Soma, or that they would have thought he would have used here, soma refers to the human person in good or neutral terms. Sarks refers to the person negatively or something unfavorable. So in other words, I'm sarks because I'm sick. I have bodily fluids and smells, and I sin and I die. Right, all the broken parts of us. I'm soma because I can be healthy or attractive or do good things, right? So good is soma, bad is sarx. You with me so far? Jesus talks about his own body in this particular passage with the word sarx. His broken body, his his idea that it's human, it's smelly, it's all the things that we don't think about. He doesn't use the word good to describe his body. He's talking about a community of faith, that if you're connected to him, you're connected to all that is good and all that is bad. And so he purposefully uses this word to talk about his body as a community of people who are broken and not whole and not good and not the way we wish we were. That's why Paul would later say, you are the body of Christ. And you remind us both the good and the bad, that all things collectively come together in that. And so Jesus is saying, don't just eat the good parts. You don't just get the good parts when you're part of my people. You have to have the bad parts too. Have you noticed, like, if we wanted, we sometimes wish, and maybe some of you do this, right? We go from church to church or place to place because I like these people better than these people. What Jesus is trying to say, and this is why people left him, because the heart teaching is this, I don't care where you're from. But if you're my people, then I'm your people too. And I'm connected to you, the good and the bad. People I like and people I don't like, the people who smell and people who smell good. Both those people make up the community of faith. So, back to Rollheiser, here's what he says. He says, In essence, Jesus is saying, You cannot deal with a perfect, all loving, all forgiving God in heaven if you cannot deal with a less than perfect, less than forgiving, and less than understanding community here on earth. 
You cannot pretend to be dealing with an invisible God if you refuse to deal with a visible family. Teaching this truth can ruin one's popularity in a hurry. People then found it to be intolerable language, and it meets the same resistance today. That's why people left when Jesus began to teach this. If you're a part of my community faith, a part of my body, that the broken things come with it too. That's why we like to use things in our day. We'll say things like this, like my faith is mine alone, or it's just me and Jesus. I can be disconnected from a local community of faith, and I can still be faithful to him. But what my observation this summer was is that's just not true. If we're entirely disconnected from a community of faith, what we find is we find ourselves eventually disoriented in our faith because God and Jesus begin to look and sound a lot like me and probably not like who we actually find in the scriptures. This is counter Jesus' message that you and I cannot do this alone. In fact, I appreciate a friend of mine, Scott Marshall, is a pastor in, in Kansas, and he shared this, this just, just this weekend, and so I thought I would share it with you. He's talking about the four reasons why being a part of a community of faith matters and gathering with people in corporate worship matters. Here's what he said. So this is his number two reason. Finding out faith is a team sport. A modern heresy is that faith is something private. It's what I think, in my heart, alone, between just me and God. And you can't tell me any different. But this only cements the struggle of loneliness, paving over it with a religious-sounding veneer. To use a sports metaphor, being a Christian isn't golf, it's basketball, or football, or soccer. We have a personal contribution, but we win together. It's why Paul says we are the body of Christ. The last time I went somewhere, I didn't leave any body parts behind. We traveled together through life. Reuben Welch in his book, We Really Do Need Each Other, says we often treat faith like we're individual deep sea divers. Each in our diver helmet, each with our individual air hose to the surface. When someone gets a kink in their hose, we look through our helmet, judge them, and hope they can get it worked out. Brother, we'll pray for you. This, Reuben says, is wrong-headed. Instead, we really do need each other. Corporate worship reminds us that we aren't in this by ourselves. We're called to be committed and connected to a local body of believers. Flaws and all. In fact, I would say it this way. It's a non-negotiable part of being a follower of Jesus. Not only do you see this in this text, but we see it all throughout the New Testament. It's a reminder for us that God is just not out there, but he is present here with us among us, and we see his divine image in each other. And that doesn't happen separate from each other. In fact, I'll end with this kind of idea with the words of Rollheiser again from the same book. He writes this. This misunderstanding has different expressions, but it can be summarized in a simple phrase. I'm a good Christian, a sincere, God-serving person. But I don't need church. I can pray just as well at home. That can be true if you are precisely a theist, which means you just believe in God. But it can never be true for a Christian or for anyone within Judaism as well. Part of the very essence of Christianity is to be together in a concrete community with all the real human faults that are there and the tensions that this will bring us. Spirituality for a Christian can never be an individualistic quest. The pursuit of God outside of community, family, and church. 
The God of the incarnation tells us that anyone who says that he or she loves an invisible God in heaven is unwilling to deal with the visible neighbor on earth is a liar, since no one can love a God who cannot be seen if he or she cannot love a neighbor who can be seen. Hence, a Christian spirituality is always as much about dealing with each other as it is about dealing with God. We need to be connected and committed to a community of faith, and it deeply matters. The second thing I think I learned this summer, I was reminded of, is that Sabbath matters. In fact, it was such an important thing, it made the original list of ten, right? God's ten commandments we find in the book of Exodus, and here's what we find in Exodus Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day, and made it holy. So I was thinking about Sabbath, or if you were Jewish, you'd say Sabbat. And I was thinking about how this summer, my son and I were in Israel. Uh, we spent one Sabbath there. And ironically, we were at a place called the Dead Sea. And there, and so it's kind of a tourist place. But there's some interesting things that Jews even today do on Sabbath. And so um, we had some like teenage girls like, can we go shopping? We got here because they saw these like this mall and stuff. And they're like, no, because it's all closed. So you can go, but there's no one there and you can't buy anything. So good luck. But one of the other interesting things, by the way, if you ever stay in a hotel in Israel, it's a great day to check out because you get to stay until 5 p.m. because they don't want you to have to work, and so you don't have to get your stuff out there yet, so it's a good deal. But they even have these weird things. I think it's weird uh, because they consider it work if you press the button in an elevator, so you don't have to do that. So they have Sabbath elevators that go to every single floor. So if you're on the 20th floor because you can't press the button, you just ride to the 20th floor on that elevator and it stops at every single now I didn't I avoided those elevators because I'm not Jewish and I wasn't gonna celebrate that. But it was an option for you for there. But right so but they take it seriously, right? They prep meal stuff the day before. They don't cook on that day. They'll use a hot plate, but it's gotta be plugged in. They they don't do any work. They're very intentional about it. But here's the reality for us like what we begin to recognize is that Sabbath matters. You're like, well didn't Jesus talk about like, we don't have to do it that way. Doesn't he say something about that? I mean, maybe you think about the story in John chapter 5 where Jesus heals the paralyzed man. Like this previously paralyzed man is healed and he says, take your mat, get up and go. And he's like, okay. And he gets up and he leaves. And the Pharisees see this and they're upset. And they're like, you, he's carrying his mat. He was paralyzed 10 minutes ago and you're worried about him carrying his mat? You're like these people, right? It doesn't make any sense. Or maybe this particular text from Mark chapter 2 is the one you think of when you think of Jesus talking about the Sabbath. Here's what he says. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields. And as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, have you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. He also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So maybe we don't have to follow the Sabbath that says made for man, not the other way around. No. Here's why. 
Sabbath is about the rest and recognition that God is God. Sabbath was instituted after the exodus out of Egypt where the Israelites had been slaves. Where they didn't get to determine when they rested. They didn't get to determine what they ate or what they did or where they went. Because in Pharaoh's economy, they had no say. In Pharaoh's economy, rest was not a prerequisite. In Pharaoh's economy, you did what Pharaoh said you were supposed to do. And what God says to Moses and these people is this. My economy, God's economy, is radically different than that of Pharaoh. Pharaoh says, you work seven days a week, but I say you rest one day a week. Pharaoh says that you never can produce enough, but I say what you can do in six days is more than enough. You're like, oh yeah, pretty good. Out of slavery and they get a day off, it's a good thing. Um... But here's the reality for us. We live in an American economy which says this. It's much more than economic. It says there's no room for rest. Someone else will get ahead of me, whether that's in sports or business or politics or in education or pleasure or whatever. Someone will get ahead. And so then we buy into phrases like this. I can't possibly take a Sabbath. Or we'll say this to someone or we've heard this said to us. You can rest when you're dead. And here's the reality. If you don't rest, you will die. And it'll have the same result. But this is hard for us. If you're Jewish, you understand that Sabbath or Sabbat begins on Friday night at sundown and ends Saturday night at the same time. And you go, oh, yeah, man, I, I work on Saturday or I work on Friday or I work on, like, okay. But here's what I think Jesus might say. It's not in the Bible, but I'm pretty sure he might say this way. And this might be what we can take from this Thing he just talked about here. I don't care if you practice Sabbath on Saturday or Sunday or Tuesday. By the way, Sunday is not Sabbath. And for me, I work every Sunday. It's never a Sabbath. So like whatever day for you, like I don't care what day you practice Sabbath. But I do think he's saying, hey, you still need to do it. And if it's just one more item to check off your list, then you're not doing it right. Then we're not doing it right. That's what it is for us. But what if it's a point time to rest and recognize that God is God and that he can sustain us and that rest really does matter? In fact, I say it this way. Sabbath rest should be one of the foundations of our life. So much so, that brings me to the third point of what I would want to say today. Um, my son and I were able to go to Egypt and Jordan and Israel, and a couple things jumped out to me, but one of the biggest things I noticed was architecture. And so all three places, I was thinking about like, the difference and the contrast of here, where we live, and like, we live in a country that at most, right, you can find buildings that may be 400 years old, um, if they're still around. There's a handful, right? That's it. And I was thinking about how, well, that's true for us, and we build stuff, and we're pretty pumped if it lasts like two generations. That's kind of awesome. It made it like 40, 50 years before we tear it down and build something else. And we went to a place where I noticed the architecture was like, hey, let's see if we can make this last for 100 generations or more. In fact, I began to notice that the foundation of the buildings that we began to see was incredibly incredibly different than the way we build stuff here. It was built, it took a lot longer, but it was built to last. So we were in Caesarea and we went to this um, amphitheater. And you can see here, um, by the way, this still is right there. You'll notice there's a bunch of chairs, and here's why there's a bunch of chairs. They still hold concerts here, and this was built by Herod the Great, you know, the one who tried to kill the babies and tried to kill baby Jesus. Um, he built this over 2,000 years ago. And they still have concerts there, and 5,000 people will go to a concert, and they were getting ready for one the day we were there. And it's considered like one of the coolest things in Israel if you get to perform there to this day. 
2,000-year-old place that you can perform. Or maybe, um, maybe you're thinking about the, the pyramids. And so I think, yeah, this was um, to give you some perspective of how big it is. Or that's my son trying to climb up. He's about five foot tall. And so he's trying to climb up that. And he was climbing up it. And it's actually okay. You can go up a little ways and they don't get upset. Um, but I was thinking about how if no one messed with those, they would be there for two to 4,000 more years. They are that big. And the stones are that large. And they're made of rock that is that dense that the foundation is not going to go anywhere unless someone comes along and destroys it. Otherwise, it will last for thousands more years. Or maybe you begin to think about, like, we talk about the temple in Israel, and so there's this, here's a picture of, of rocks that were, um, I think, maybe, maybe not, maybe we just lost the pictures. Oh, no, there we go. So, um, these are when we talk about in 70 AD when the Romans destroyed the temple and they tore it down. These are the rocks from when they tore it down. And they're massive, massive rocks, stones, large bricks, whatever you call them. And they're left there as a reminder of what happened when they were destroyed, a reminder of what Rome did and those kind of things. And so, um, but you can also see this is the Western Wall or the Wailing Wall. And, and you can see kind of just the foundations of how big these stones are and how they fit together. And then you can see even we went in a tunnel underneath. And you can see in this next picture, like the largest man-made structure, the temple, the largest stone used in a man-made structure was 333,000 ton. It's a lot, by the way. And it's, you can find it in that wall. It's built to last. All right, the foundation was meant not to crumble. The foundation was meant to last for a long time. The foundation was meant to be something that would be there forever and ever. And so I was thinking about this, right? We often build something to get it accomplished as quick as we can. We'll cut whatever corner we think we need to because we want it done. But they built something to last. And so I couldn't help but kept coming back to these words of Jesus from Matthew chapter 7 again and again and again. And here's what Jesus said. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall, because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose. And the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Now, Jesus is clearly not really talking about buildings. He's not really talking about the foundations. In fact, we know Jesus is the one himself who said um, that the temple was going to be restored and rebuilt in three days. And he was talking about himself. He was the very presence of God. In fact, what he says to us is, you are the temple of God. You, as the church, you as a people, not you as a building. He makes that abundantly clear. But he is talking about what is the foundation of our life. What have we built our life on? And so what he's saying is this. If you'll take the words in Matthew 5 and 6 and 7, and they'll be what you build your entire life around, what you'll find is it will be a foundation that will last for eternity. It will not be able to be destroyed. It will not, when the storms come, it will not, be, it will not crumble, it will not be washed away. But it will last. What's it look like? Take the words of Jesus seriously so much so that we'd follow after him and his teaching and with all that we are. We begin to recognize we built our life around him. It would be the life that leads to life, or as he's already told us, it would be the bread of heaven that would sustain us for all eternity. It would be the kind of foundation that would last from generation to generation that wouldn't crumble. 
be a solid foundation. He just wants to say to you and I that he is that foundation. And he desires for us to build one that will last. And here's the reality for you and I. We are continually building the foundation of our life. It is what we do every single day. There's no moment of our day, no thing that we do in which we're not continuing to do that. right? But here's the problem for us. When we live disconnected from a community of faith, we're building a foundation that can't withstand a storm. We don't honor the Sabbath. We're building a foundation that will crumble in exhaustion. But when we build our foundation upon Jesus, and he is what sustains us. We can find we can know life to the full, the life that leads to life, the life that never ends. Right, one of the things I learned, um, I didn't know this, I, I thought there were like four pyramids in all of Egypt. Um, there's 117. So I thought there were four, right? I know the, the ones, and then I found out about the, this place, called Saqqara. Didn't know about that until like right before we were on the trip. Um, but you've seen the pyramids, right? You've seen like they look like, and they're really big, and, and so that's what they look like. Um, but some of the other pyramids, right? These were built to last. They are built with incredible stone. They took them out of a quarry next door. Um, some other pyramids were not built quite so well, right? So here is, I believe, some bricks that they used. Um, you can actually kind of see the straw in the bricks. And so when it talks about, in the Bible, they built bricks without straw. It's kind of like these. Um, but they're kind of big. You can pick them up. They're not like so massive, um, but here's the problem. Like this next picture, this is a pyramid, by the way. Looks a little different than the other three, right? It just looks like a big pile of dirt. That's what it looks like. You can see glimpses of some of the stone still in there, right? Like you can pick them up, and, and, and it's just kind of crumbling around it. It's, it just looks like a big pile of dirt because they didn't build it to last. They cut corners. They built it in such a way that, you know, the, the bricks were okay, but it was like this mud bricks. Mud bricks are not going to last for generation upon generation upon generation. They're going to crumble. doesn't get a lot of rain there, but when it gets rain, it just kind of washes more and more of it off. But this is the reality for you and I. The question is, what are we building our foundation on? Is it something that's going to last? Is it going to be one of the great pyramids that's going to last for generation to generation? Or are we building it with kind of bricks that are just cheaply put together, don't have much value, aren't going to build, be that something that lasts very long? Because here's what I was thinking, but for our own lives, for our families, and our futures, to be the kind of thing that will last from generation to generation, they need to be building something that is eternal. The words and teachings, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. So there are three things I think I learned this summer, or relearned, maybe a better way to say that, that maybe are for you and I, is this. Number one, we need to live connected to a community of faith. Number two, we need to practice Sabbath. And number three, the foundation of our life matters. This brings us back to the words of Jesus, who invites us over and over again to learn to remain or abide in him. It reminds us that we can know life that leads to life. We can know the true life, the real source of the substance that can give us something that we can survive and not just survive, but thrive in knowing who he is. It can be the foundation of who we are. He invites us in all of our sarks, our brokenness, our disgusting parts of our lives, the parts we wish we could get rid of, and our soma, our good stuff. He invites us to bring all those things to his table and to offer restoration and healing and hope wherever we may find ourselves. He invites us to come to know a wholeness that can only come from him, but it doesn't come disconnected from a community of faith. It doesn't come when we don't rest, and it doesn't come when he's not the foundation of our life. 
And so the question for you and I is, what are we building? And are we building it upon him? But he invites us to come wherever we are in this moment, as we are to his table, to offer his restoration, where he says to us, I will offer you the bread of life, this bread that leads to life. You can come to know me and you'll never be hungry again if I'll be what sustains you. If I'm where you find your life, maybe today you feel like your life is literally crumbling around like one of those bad pyramids in Egypt. And you can just see pieces falling off. And you can see them littering the ground and you're not sure what to do next. And you don't know how to pick them up and you don't know how, where to begin. But what if I were to tell you today this, that Jesus says, come to me as you are. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come to me and find the life that leads to life. Maybe you just need to be restored today. Or maybe you need to begin to build a new foundation. And maybe he can be the place. So wherever you find yourself today, whether you feel broken or whole, he is the one who extends his grace and his love and his mercy to each of us. So the night he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body broken for you, take and eat. In the same way, he took the cup and he said, this is my blood poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins, take and drink. And so he invites us to come to his table to receive, right, not some weird eat my flesh and drink my blood. That was never his point. But his point was this, I'm the one who can offer healing and hope to you, the kind of food that will sustain you for all eternity. And so you and I are invited to that table this morning to receive his grace and his mercy and his love. And so today, if you want to say Jesus is Lord, then come to that table and receive his love, receive his grace, receive his gift. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together today for the way in which you invite us to be near. We thank you for how you call us to be your unique people and you've come to us and you invite us to come to you we might take a step towards you in such a way that we come to know the fullness of your love and your grace and your mercy and so today if we're wondering where we're building the foundation of our life if maybe we're not taking seriously the idea of rest or the idea of what we do day in and day out matters or maybe just maybe we've living disconnected from a community of faith that we need to plug back in in some ways that matter father help us today we be the kind of people who have surrendered our whole selves to you. May we come to the table this morning and receive the gift that you have on offer for us. May we choose you in all circumstance. As we challenge our kids today, may we too be the light of the world. May we come to know the one who is light and life, and may he shine in and through us. And so we pray all of this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.